Quint said in the video, uh, and I don't know if supercharge it's it's importance, but um, you know, there's a I don't know if you can hear you when you sing, but I mean, if you're up front, you can hear you when you sing. And um, did you know that right now, in this very moment? and revolving 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time, there is a company, the Bible says, a company of heavenly hosts worshiping and singing praise to the Father. Holy, holy, holy. And when we come in worship, we, we join that chorus of praise. And we get, like, maybe even the tiniest glimpse of what it's like to be in the actual presence of the Lord. And like, uh, I don't know, there's an old-timer I know that says, instead of saying goosebumps, he says chicken skin. And like, <laughs> and like and I'm up here up front and I can hear everyone singing, I get, get chicken skin, you know? Like imagining what it's going to be like to be in the presence of uh, a whole heavenly host uh, singing praises to the Lord. Also, something that Quint said um, about the worship nights and about bringing your kids. Um, so much of life is, so much, so much of parenting, I guess we'll say, is, is we think it's verbal lessons that we give to our kids. Like, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. And when we think that everything that we teach them uh, comes from what we, what we say to them. Um, and a lot of that is true, of course, but what's been my experience is that much of parenting, much of teaching your children is about allowing them to see you in life. And, and your children become little, little miniature you, right? Um, and, and in that sense, worship, right, is not just something that we teach our children about. You're like, oh, we go to church and, you, and we sing, you know? It's something not that's taught. It's something that's caught, right? When, when they're in the company of a community of believers who are together uh, praising the Lord. Right? It's in that moment where they see what's happening around them and they join in. And you, you want to know the smile on God's face, right? When a child begins to sing, you know? Because children don't know how to not believe. I've got a five-year-old son with the most incredible imagination it's exhausting, the imagination, right? The most incredible but exhausting imagination. But um, it's also like the things that come out of, like you have ordained the lips of infants and children for praise. You know? Um, so bring your kids. Allow them to see you in worship, to experience the power and presence of the Holy Spirit 
as, as the Spirit of God, as it says in Psalm chapter 22, inhabits the praises of his people. Um, and it will, be, it will be a blessing to you and a blessing to the church and a blessing to uh, the kingdom. So um, we're going to pick up from where we left off last week in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a copy of the scripture with you, open it up to Luke chapter 10. If not, uh, you can get it on uh, the Conduit app, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, feel free to get it there. There are Bibles in your seats. Um, but uh, we're gonna, that's where we're going to be. So join me there. Luke chapter 10. Uh, where we started in Luke 10 uh, last week, we're gonna just going to do a short little recap here um, to get our minds set straight. We're going to go, like, there's, there's, a, there's a, a pretty clear trajectory in Luke chapter 10, and we want to make sure that we don't forget where we were last week because it really informs where we are um, this week. Uh, you know, Jesus had uh, a ton of followers, right? Uh, so many, so many followers that it records in Luke chapter 9 that there was at least one occasion where he fed thousands and thousands of people, okay? And when it comes to Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is about to send out his uh, followers on mission, right? Send them out with a message to towns and villages and people and places that they had not yet been. He kind of did the whole like shimmy, shake the crowd of people, see who can, you know, who can make the cut, who can pass the mustard, like, and funnel, funnel it down to those who have counted the cost, what it takes to follow Jesus and get the job done. And so we get to the point here, the beginning of Luke chapter 10, where he has these 72 people that he's getting ready to send out. And the first, one of the first things that he says to them is he describes the spiritual reality that they are going out into. He says, uh, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Now, as we mentioned last week, you don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to be a sociologist. You don't even really um, need to be an intelligent person at all. All you have to do is just pay attention to the world around you to know that there is something helplessly and deeply and severely broken with this world and with people. Like, this is not how it was supposed to be. Right? There is something deeply wrong. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that, that not just humanity, but all of creation, right, is groaning, waiting for the redemption that comes for the sons and daughters of God, where all of the brokenness of life will be put back together and things can kind of resume in the way and in the function that they were originally meant to be. That, that, that brokenness is deep-seated. 
That it's not, that it's not taken care of by a, a self-help book here or a conference there or some, a social service over here. That it is, uh, it seeps down into the core of everything that is and everyone who is. And so God was calling men, women, children, churches. God is calling people, those who recognize the brokenness, right, to, to pick up the tools of the gospel and to walk into, march into, live on mission, term that we use here, into the harvest fields of life. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, is what Jesus says in uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Uh, the message that those workers are to take is equally important, right? Jesus doesn't send us out ill-prepared, right? He doesn't desire that we go as ones unaware of our task and of the message that is to be proclaimed. And so he tells the 72 in verses 8 through 12 exactly what it is that he wants them to do. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. The kingdom of God is near you. Now, um, you may have been in a place in your life, um, I've been in places in my life before where I've considered my circumstances, my, um, the situation that I'm, that I'm like in the middle of, the relationships that are broken, the, um, the uh, you know, your personal health is failing and falling apart, your, your loved ones are experiencing pain, um, and you do this like wondering whether or not it's okay to kind of look up into the sky and be like, where in the world are you, God? Like just this feeling of emptiness and loneliness and of like, a, like uh, Lord, uh, hello, do you see me down here? Right? Are we, are we together on this? And, and we might have this, might have this feeling that, that, that God, rather than being like close and, and intimate in your life, is just so horribly transcendent and aloof and sitting on a throne somewhere, long white beard, lightning bolt in the hand, ready, like, ready to just strike down at the next thing you do wrong, feeling like you could not be further from God, and he could not be further from you. And the feeling is a desperation of what in the world will I ever do? How, how can I escape this? How can I get out from underneath of this? And... And let me tell you what, is that this is not just a like 21st century modern day problem type of thing, right? That, that brokenness existed in the time of Jesus as well, right? And that these, 
this, this, this feeling of there, there has got to be something more to this whole thing, Jesus. Like, there, there's got to be something more, God. Like, where in the world are you? And so what is the message that Jesus sent his followers out with? It was comfort in the midst of the hopelessness that God was far from them with the encouragement that, no, no, God has come near in Jesus Christ. That, that you may have perceived God to be far off. You may have perceived God to be only transcendent, far, like uninvolved in the world, but, but, but the message of the gospel is here to say that God has come near to you. That, that God has come to be with you. And that, and that for us, the encouragement is that it goes further than Jesus just being like your buddy, right? Like he just walks with you along in life. But what scripture proclaims is that by faith in Jesus Christ, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives and breathes and moves not with you, but where? In you. That it's the spirit of the living God that has come near to you, has come inside of you through faith in Jesus Christ. That God is not far away from you. In fact, God is as close to you as your very breath. Go into the world and proclaim this, Jesus says, that, that you are not alone, people. That God is with you. That God has offered his spirit to you. Here's the crazy thing, though. You would think a message like that would be the most universally accepted message in all of eternity, right? Like, oh, God with me? Um, yes, I'll take a double share of that, right? But the reality is, right, even in the universality of the need for God in the midst of brokenness, the reality is, is that there are people every day, even from the very beginning, that say, no thanks. Not interested. For whatever reason, reject the message. Now, what's important, I think, for us as, you know, figurative members of the 72, as people who God has, Jesus has sent out on mission, is to be encouraged, okay? To not become discouraged. It's important that you and I, that we, that we make the personal distinction in our hearts not to be offended or to live under offense when the message that we proclaim on behalf of Jesus Christ is rejected. But that we make, that we make the personal decision to separate the rejection of the message from their rejection of us as people so that we may continue to walk in a spirit of love humility, and service to those who are hard of heart. Because if we allow ourselves offense at their rejection, right, our hearts 
will become hard towards their hardness of heart. And so by separating ourselves, right, making the, making the conscious decision to separate their rejection of the message from their rejection of us as people, we encourage our spirits towards remaining soft in heart and compassion for their hardness. See, because understand, it's um, the, the, the tendency, I guess I should say, is that in, in many cases, when the message that we carry, the message that we proclaim is rejected, we do one of two things. We, we receive it as a rejection of us, and we walk away hardened towards the person, right? That breaks relationship. Or we, we persevere and push through the rejection, but we round off the sharp corners of the message, Right? We, we round off the, 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 things that we, the things that we think that they rejected because maybe they're too hard or they cost too much or there's, there's too much at stake. So we, we cut off the corners, we water it down, we change the content of the message so that we can substitute it and hopefully they will receive it. Right? But, but Jesus says it's, it's not your message to change. That, that the messenger is only the carrier of the message, not the, not the origin of the message. That we are like ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And just like a, an ambassador in the political or governmental realm, they move to a foreign country, right? And they don't represent their own political ideology, right? They represent the land that they have come from, who they've been sent there by, the, the president, so to speak, right? They're in a foreign land. The policies may not be very um, uh, popular, but their job and responsibility is to represent the one that has sent them. And, and our, our responsibility, our job as an ambassador of Jesus Christ is to represent not our own ideologies, not our own theologies, not our own opinions, not to round off the corners of Jesus, but to simply and clearly and boldly represent him. Even in the midst of impending rejection. Now, um, here's... Here's where we, so that's kind of like a, a not so brief recap of where we were last week. Um, my apologies. Uh, <laughs> Reader's Digest version 2.0, I guess. Um, but uh, we need to, I mean, we need to grasp that, okay? Because as we move out of verse 12 in Luke chapter 10 and into verse 13 and following, um, that all sets the stage for where we are here. So Luke, Chen, or Luke 10, chapter uh, 13. Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths. Now, here is a, okay, hear me, this is super important, all right? What we must always keep in tension, all right? Um, we cannot proclaim eternal hope in Jesus Christ without also proclaiming the reality of God's judgment of sin. Always and forever, those two things are in tension with one another. All right? If we have no place to proclaim the reality of God's judgment for sin, then there is nothing to hope for. Right? Our hope is that in Jesus Christ, God has judged sin already, and that Jesus has taken sin, both its power and its penalty, and put it to death on the cross, and that in his resurrection, Jesus came victorious out of death, free from its power and its penalty, that by faith in Jesus Christ, those who receive Jesus live in the same reality of being freed from the penalty and the power of sin and its eternal judgment. But listen, if we don't fully believe in the, in the, in the reality of God's judgment against sin, then there's nothing to hope in. There's nothing to hope for. So while we preach that there is hope that God is near, that, that, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God can live within us if we don't also highlight and keep in tension the reality of God's impending judgment against sin, then hope is emptied of its significance. It, it has no power, right? It has no, uh, it has no oomph. And we do you zero favors as pastors, as a church, by glossing over that fact, by, by painting the picture of God as just some kind of like Humpty Dumpty pushover grandfatherly figure who at the end of all things will look at your earnest attempt at righteousness and say, ah, oh, shucks, I, I guess we'll let you slide through this time. See, because when we do that, if we just slide past the reality of God's judgment because it's a difficult message to hear and you might reject it, we, be, we become what Paul warned Timothy of in 2 Timothy, is that there will come a time where people will not put up with sound doctrine, but they will gather around themselves Teachers, right? Preachers, people who will tell them what their itching ears just want to hear. 
you're okay, right? You're, you're good enough. God will let you slide. God, God sees your heart, and you've done more good than you have bad, and you've heard it all, right? I wish it was true, right? Um, but Scripture um, says that, it's, that it, it, Scripture paints a much different picture <laughs> of the eternal reality than that. So, um, instead, as, as people who want to maintain our roles as messengers of the gospel, as sent ones, with a message that's not our own, right? Um, we must be faithful to the reality that Scripture declares God not as just some Humpty Dumpty pushover of a grandfatherly figure who's going to let everyone slide through because they were sincere. But Scripture declares God, in fact, Paul says in the first letter to Timothy, that God lives in unapproachable light. That the very, the very essence of his holiness is so fantastic and so wonderful and so awe-inspiring and so terrifying that, that his holiness cannot even be approached. Any C.S. Lewis fans in the crowd today? Yes? No? Maybe? Are you there? Come on, people. You with me? Amen? Amen if you're a C.S. Lewis fan. Okay. Chronicles of Narnia, right? The story um, that C.S. Lewis wrote for his nieces and nephews to trying to, to explain to them the, the deeper realities of the gospel. And we have this character, this, this mighty lion named Aslan, right? And, and what does C.S. Lewis say about Aslan? Or what is... Um, what do one of the characters say about Aslan? Aslan? Is he a good lion? Yes, he is good. Right? Is he a tame lion? No, he is not tame. He is not safe. Right? The lion is good, right? But the lion is not tame, right? that the holiness of God right, is both awe-inspiring and terrifying. The holiness of God. So Paul depicts God as, um, that he declares that God is unapproachable light, utter holiness and glory, and as one who will not be taken advantage of, or one who will not be, Paul uses the word mocked, in Galatians chapter 6. Right? Paul says that, um, that we should not be deceived. God not will not be mocked, but God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. There is a 
balance or a tension that occurs between the hope of God set in Jesus Christ and the judgment of God as his final and utter and holy response to sin. So we get to verse 13 in Luke chapter 10, and we see these cities, right? These villages, these cities, um, Chorazin, uh, Bethesda, Capernaum. And we see that Jesus says, almost kind of in rhetorical fashion, not to really anyone specifically, right? But in the gospel account here, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! And what is Jesus saying here? Well, well this phrase, woe, this word woe, uh, is meant to, to signify uh, a deep and like almost horrendous sense of regret over where the like over the reality of the situation. Now we all have people that we love in life, right? Whether it's a spouse or a, a, a sibling or a parent or a niece or a nephew or a child, right? We all have someone that we're in relationship with that we love and care deeply about. And, and, and think of a time in your life where, for, for me, it's like thinking of it of, with my children, but can be anyone. Think of a time where they've made a horrible decision. And now they are experiencing the consequences of the decision that they made. They're, they're sitting under the weight of circumstances that unfolded because of something that they either did or did not do. And, and your love for them, right, it compels you to a deep-seated, like, regret and grief over what's happening. Like, whoa. And so Jesus here is, is speaking of, of cities, of, of villages, where uh, all, of these, all of these villages were on the northern-ish shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is primarily where the ministry of Jesus took place in those three years of his ministry. And so, and so he's, he's like, all of these miracles, he's like, woe to you, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And, and, and Jesus is like, I was with you for three years. I did absolutely everything I could. Teaching with authority in the synagogues, healing the sick, bringing the dead back to life, performing miracles with bread and fish, and all of these wonderful things. And still, even in the midst of all of those things, you saw and you still rejected. Now, apart from Jesus expressing his deep-seated regret at the lack of uh, reception of he himself, 
by these cities is an encouragement to us, right? Jesus' grief here is an encur- can be an encouragement to us, right? Because look, people, if Jesus got rejected in the midst of the per- performing miracles, right? Um, don't take it too personally, right? If your coworker rejects your proclamation of the gospel. Because Jesus is like, he's the dude, right? Like, like he's the one. He's the center of the, he is the message himself. And he's still being rejected. Why? Hmm. This is an interesting question. How could Jesus possibly be rejected? I mean, I just got to say, if dude brought someone back to life right in front of me, like, I'm in it to win it, coach, right? Like, there's no question whatsoever, right? Okay, Messiah following you, whatever you say, you got it, right? But there were still those who rejected him, and Jesus is saying this right here, the whole people groups, whole cities, like, rejecting him. I've gotten, I've been asked the question before. Um, you may have asked the question of yourself before. I think pro- probably everyone has asked this question before. I can guarantee Pastor Ben, Pastor Corey have received this question before. So you're saying, Pastor, that, that, God, that God loves us. God does not want us to perish, to reject him. Yes, I am saying that, right? The song that Bryce led us in already. Oh, how he loves us. Like the depth of his love is beyond all comprehension. We don't have a category to express the depth um, and height and width and power of God's love for us. Right? It doesn't exist. We can't. However, so if God loves us and God is holy and perfectly Sovereign, having power to do any and all things that he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, why can't God just make everyone receive the message of the gospel? Like, if that's what God wants, and God has the power to do it, why wouldn't he? You know, it's easy for us to ask that question because if we have the power to do something that we want to do, what do we do? We do it. Right? But is that love? Um, this, it's Valentine's Day. We'll talk about love for a minute. Uh, I wore my pink sweater for the occasion. I hope you all appreciate that. Um, <laughs> But um, I've been with my, with my wife, Sherry, since we were in junior high, going on 20 years that we've been together, um, married for 12 years this summer. Um, and I still remember 
uh, July 17th, 2004, around 10 after 2 in the afternoon, the moment where she rounded the corner at the pew, the back pew of our home church over in East Randolph, and started to march down the aisle um, in her wedding dress to be my wife. Boom! So, um, the question is, how do I know that my wife loves me? That's the question. How do we know God loves us? How do we know that my wife loves me? Well, I have a pretty good idea, um, because... When my wife rounded that corner to come down the aisle, she was walking with her father, and her father was not dragging her. (laughs) Right? Under her own free choice, she walked down the aisle to say her vows and proclaim her love for me. And um, no one was forcing her. No one compelled her to do that. Right? If I had marched down the aisle and I had taken Sherry by the hand and I had dragged her, kicking and screaming, up to the front of the church and said, you are going to love me, you do not have a choice in the matter. No one would agree that that is the definition of love. Right? That is not love. And she might remain married to me and remain in relationship with, with me, but there is, no, there is no forcing that I can do to make her love me. The reason I know she loves me is because she has the choice not to love me. And without the choice to not love... There can never be the choice to love. So if we say to ourselves, well, if God loves us and and wants us to receive him and, and, and wants us to believe by faith in Jesus Christ, why doesn't he just make us do it? Because that turns Jesus into, or that turns God into kind of a maniacal, abusive you're going to love me no matter what type of figure. And we believe at the very core of, the, of God's being, of course, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is what? Love. Not God loves, right? As in it's something that he does. But no, God is love. It is his character. It is his being It is his very nature. It's not something that he simply does or doesn't do. It is who he is. And at the very center of love is freedom. It's the freedom to not love. And so it should not be surprising to us then that cities like Chorazin and Bethesda and Capernaum, even in the midst of 
every miracle they possibly could experience, they still had a choice. And they chose rejection. Now, verse 17 here kind of switches um, kind of switches uh, trajectory here. Alright? So, uh, Jesus sent out the 72. They went and did their thing. Right? And after they had done their thing, they started to filter back to Jesus, right? Time to recharge, reboot, get some more marching orders. And in verse 17 is where we pick up that, all right? Uh, Luke says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They, they come and they report the accomplishments of the task that Jesus sent them out to do. They were so excited about what they, were, about what they accomplished. And, and um, Jesus here, he, I think he, he allows them to, to rest in that excitement, right? To encourage them, uh, to build them up, but he... Uh, it's almost like Jesus kind of just takes the, the attitude of joy that they had and just uses that as a teachable moment for the spiritual reality that they were going to be continuing to wage as they continued on mission in life. Um, so, verse 18. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, um, Jesus often spoke in figurative terms, right? He used metaphor. He used analogy. He used story to create images that his followers would recognize and be able to grab onto, but that communicated spiritual realities, right? Jesus did this all the time. We call them parables, where he taught a story, or he told a story that had multi-layer spiritual realities in order to communicate a point. In fact, next week we're going to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is exactly that, a story that relays a point, okay? And so Jesus here... Um, uses, uses like imagery to help communicate a point about the spiritual battle that the disciples or the, the followers are in. Um, and, and it's kind of funny what Jesus does, not funny, but it's, it's interesting what Jesus does here because he relates with the excitement and shares his own experience in viewing or witnessing the spiritual battle. He says, okay, so the, the, the followers come in and they're like, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus is like, dudes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Right? Like, yeah, I get it. I, I, I witnessed it. Like, like, in the spiritual realm, the authority of God over the work of the enemy, over the, over the power of Satan, uh, like, I, I've seen it at its core. I saw it at its 
origin. Like, yeah, I'm with you. I get it. Like, not only so, but, but I've given you authority to, to trample on scorpions and snakes to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, was Jesus saying here that, you know, that the followers were physically untouchable? That they could go and handle snakes? You wonder where snake handling came from? They could go and handle snakes and scorpions and that, and that nothing would harm them? Well, I hope not, because as far as I know, um, at least the original 12 uh, were all killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ, right? So harm was brought to them. Or was Jesus using, once again, imagery, right, to help convey a spiritual reality that by the power of Jesus Christ living in you, right, that, that you have victory over the spiritual forces of wickedness, that, that you can overcome the enemy through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that's what he was teaching them here. That's what he was encouraging them to. But there's something even deeper that Jesus says here that we often miss if we're not careful. He says, even the, de- or the, the, um, the 72 uh, said, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority. Jesus, the authority, any authority that you or I or the church has for victory in the spiritual battle is the authority of Jesus. We do not possess authority on our own, right? It's not of our own volition or our own power or our own might or strength. The authority to overcome spiritual forces of wickedness, to overcome the power of the enemy, lies in Jesus and Jesus alone. My friend Zach is here. Zach is a police officer. He doesn't know he's going to be in the sermon this morning, but he is now. Um, <clears throat> Zach is a police officer, and for, for work, he wears a badge, Right? or a shield, or whatever they call it, right? And so when Zach, let's say Zach pulls over a car, right? And he goes up to the window, and he, uh, you know, Zach's a strong guy, and, he, you know, he's can be intimidating, and, you know, like, the person that's in the car could think, well, this, this police officer is exerting his authority as, um, and he's kind of intimidating, and I respect him because of, uh, because of who he is and his, his, his status and his, and his place. But, but really, what is, what is the authority that a police officer has? Well, they, they wear a badge, and it's usually just one person, right? Uh, and if you think about it, it's not really like the authority of the individual person that um, brings people to attention, Right? And, and makes them comply in moments where they're encountered by a police officer. Right? 
It's not that person's one authority. Whose authority is it? It's the authority that is wrapped up in the symbolism of the badge and the entire justice system that lays behind the one police officer, right? Like, it's not just him. It's all of his colleagues on that individual police force, and then the, the county, and then the, the state, and the federal government, and the, and the judicial system. It's like that one person and that one badge represents an authority far greater and far more powerful than the one person could ever be. And when Jesus says to the 72, I have given you authority, what Jesus says is, all of the authority that is wrapped up in me, all of the authority on heaven and on earth, all of the authority in me as the Son of the Most High God, the one who saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, I give it to you and it's yours. You represent my authority. And that is why spiritual wickedness is broken when we utter the name of Jesus. It's not because they're afraid of us, right? It's because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on heaven and on earth that he is Lord. Your depression is not Lord. Your anxiety is not Lord. Your addiction is not Lord. Your, your hardness of heart, right? Your inability to forgive, your anger, right? It is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And by standing in the authority that Jesus Christ has given us due the power of his name, Sin is broken. You wonder why we, when we pray? Listen, here's an aside. This, is, this isn't even part of the... First service didn't even get this. You know, they didn't even get this one. So, like, <clears throat> when you pray, right? Um, yeah, you're talking, right? You're communicating with God. But, but listen, we, we need to understand something that, that how do we have access to God? We have access to God through Jesus Christ, right? By faith in Jesus Christ, the one mediator, right? The great high priest, the blood of Jesus Christ, right? Has given us full access. We can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence that if we ask anything in what? The name of Jesus, that God hears us, right? So it is by Jesus that we can even approach God at all. So when we come in prayer, and we pray for deliverance, and we pray for forgiveness, and we pray for healing, and we pray for the glory of God to come down. Listen, folks. We should not be praying any prayers where we fail to utter the words in the name of Jesus. 
Because it is at the moment that heaven hears the name of Jesus that the ears of God perk up, right? What did I just hear? Because we operate not on our own authority, but on the authority of Jesus Christ. It's not a small issue, right? If we think that God hears the words of our prayer, understands the meditations of our hearts in prayer, if the words are important, if the heart is important, then so is the manner in which we pray, trusting by faith in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. Last thing from Luke chapter 10 this morning is one of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples. Verse 20. After he reminds them of where the authority comes, he says these words, which are like, every time I read them, I become, I want to sink lower and lower. Right? And just like, ugh, Lord, like impress this by faith into my life so that I get it. Because I forget it. And I don't get it a lot. So, um, however, Jesus says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Don't make the, don't make the center of your rejoicing what it is that you do or have accomplished in the kingdom. Because the accomplishment is not yours, right? The accomplishment belongs to the one whose message it is and whose authority you operate underneath. The accomplishment is the Lord's. Jesus says, don't, don't rejoice about that. If you're going to rejoice about anything, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your name your names are written in heaven. How often have we substituted working for Jesus for walking with Jesus? Guilty as charged. It is incredibly easy, right? To work and work and work and work and work and work and you're volunteering at everything and you're in an open house and you even offer to pray. You bring snacks for the, um, for the home class. Not pointing out anyone specific. Right? And you clean the church. Right? And you do this and we do that. Like, man, I'm, I'm right on point. You know, I'm on fire. Right? but you're living with habitual patterns of unforgiveness, right? Or, 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 you're, failing to be, or you're failing to see the need in your brother or sister and, and minister to them and love them when no one's watching. Or you're, or, you're neglecting, or you're neglecting your time with Jesus in, in, in your prayer relationship. 
or in searching out his word, right? And you substitute working for Jesus with walking with Jesus, right? Jesus is not impressed. Do not rejoice that you can utter my name and the demons submit to you. Rejoice. Rejoice when the reality of your life is that your name is written in heaven. That's something to praise about. That's something to get excited about. That's something to worship about. So as Bryce and the team comes up, I'm going to want to pray us by faith into that reality that it is your place as a son, as a daughter of the Most High Father who has written your name in heaven that um, supercharges your rejoicing, your worship. Would you stand with us? Father in heaven, we are so grateful, Lord, that by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, you have written our names in heaven. Lord, and what you write down in heaven, no one can erase. So, Father, may the rejoicing of our hearts morning. May the the praise of our lips be a response to our identity in you.